When Barbara and I moved to New England, I thought, you know, we've lived in the home of the incredible, phenomenal 1985 Super Bowl Bears. But then we came here and realized that there's an entire segregated holiday just for New England to celebrate our incredible football team. And I thought, wow, we, have, we are definitely... What? That's not... Are you kidding me? I've had it wrong all these years. Oh, come on. All right, but seriously, tomorrow is Patriots Day, and we are in 1 Samuel. And I, Sunday after Sunday, I keep getting up here feeling like I'm going to start ducking when I say where we're, we're in the Scriptures, and just because we've been in 1 Samuel, especially like 12 and 13 for the last, what, nine months? No, just it's only been a few weeks. Um, but at any rate, we are, and we're picking up in 1 Samuel 12, 13. You're going to see how this all ties in, I hope. Hope. I don't know what's wrong with my voice. It must have been all that hoo-ha, and we did it at the wedding last night. <clears throat> no, there wasn't any hoo-ha. In. 1 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 13. Now, therefore, this is Samuel speaking. He's, he's introducing Saul, the newly appointed king. He says, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. The people wanted a king. We know that. We've been in the same idea for some time here. And all that that means with respect to what an earthly king is, meaning that they have unto themselves in a pure monarchy. You know, there's a lot of, uh, like, you can't look at England today and look at that as being a true monarchy. It's a figurehead. It's all symbolic and everything else. But in the day and in a real monarchy, the king has unilateral, that means uh, uh, originating with himself and nobody else, unilateral authority and unilateral power. Meaning, whatever the king says is, is. And you can question it, <laughs> but you might lose your head over it, quite literally, if you do. So what the king says is, and his word is the law. And so you can see why in many cases the king was viewed as deity. He was viewed as a god in some countries and in some epics. In the history of the world. Another aspect of the position of king is that when the king died or was about to die, there was an unquestioned or is an unquestioned uh, succession plan. And that is not determined again through any body politic. It is by divine right, as they would define it, meaning it was ordered by God. It was to that family. And so it passed on without qualification to whoever the next one in line was. When I say without qualification, I mean it didn't matter what kind of a doorknob the, the next in line was, if you know what I mean by that. He didn't have to uh, be rather astute. He didn't have to have leadership capabilities or powers. He didn't even have to want the position. He had no choice in the matter. There were no degrees for uh, masters of decision-making or a Ph.D. in monarchism. And I think a great example, even though it isn't called a kingship, North Korea is a classic example. Going from Kim Jong mentally ill to Kim Jong un. The un and only, thank goodness. The nature of monarchy establishes or changes the rule of law at whim, by fiat. That means simply because I said so. 
This is the way it's going to be. And what this means is that when a king issues an edict that happens to be, knowingly or unknowingly, that happens to be ungodly, it has to be carried out even when such an edict is against the purposes of the king of kings. And so the consequences in those situations can be horrific for the body politic, meaning everybody else under that particular monarchy. So this is why priest, the high priest Samuel in 1 Samuel, tried to warn the people of what they were inviting on themselves by their demand for this earthly king. So beginning again now in Samuel, 1 Samuel 12, beginning with verse 14 and moving forward. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice, implied is rather than your king, and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, implied by listening to your king when giving those ungodly edicts, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father's. Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. What do you mean? Well, Samuel's going to tell them. Is not today the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves an earthly king. Samuel says, okay, look, I'm going to show you what the repercussions are here. Only the very tip. And so all the people said to Samuel, well, pray, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. What Samuel says next should be surprising to us, surprising in a good way. Because what Samuel says next is tantamount to a proclamation of the gospel of grace here in the Old Testament. He continues, Samuel says to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. (laughs) Don't go after futile things because they're futile. They're worthless. They end up in a dead end or worse. Here's the grace. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of what? Of their tepid, lame, uh, coerced in a way apology for being sinful? No. He will not abandon you because of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. You cannot repent enough. You cannot backtrack Enough. You cannot cover over your sins through apologies and sacrifices and for good deeds. I will save you simply because I have determined that I will save you. That's called salvation by grace. Moreover, as for me, Samuel still speaking, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. 
If you're familiar enough with this sweep of the Old Testament, as hopefully you are or becoming so as you are on that yearly discipline to read through the scriptures, you know that there is this myriad of kings of both Israel and Judah, about 41 in all, not counting David and Solomon. And there were only a few who were truly good kings without the Lord adding some kind of a little ding on the end of that. There were others who had high marks for certain aspects of their reign, but they still had significant flaws. Just by way of illustration, there are many, many. But just for example, consider Jehoshaphat, of whom it's said in 1 Kings 22:43, Jehoshaphat walked in all the way of Asa, his father. Asa was a, one of those really, truly stellar kings. He did not turn aside from what his father did, doing right in the sight of the Lord, yet... Or but, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. That was a horrid ding on an otherwise really good track record. Meaning he did nothing to purge the land of its idolatry in worshiping other gods instead of Jehovah. Life under any and all human kings, even the really good ones, was only ever destined to fail. But the long-promised coming of the king, capital K-I-N-G, of kings, would change everything. And where do we read about that? In the New Testament? No. Later in the Old Testament, toward the, the very end there, in the latter prophets, or the minor prophets, and ending with Melchizedek as the last book of the Old Testament. No, we actually read about it initially in the very first book of the Bible. Jacob is speaking in the book of Genesis. He's talking about the future of God's people. And he says that the tribe of Judah, of all the twelve tribes, is going to be, in fact, special. The scepter, meaning the scepter or the ruling staff of the king, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. At its best, God's human leadership can only ever be flawed, from the priesthood right up and through the monarchy. And it would remain so until the day when here it is foretold that there is one coming who is called Shiloh, who is none other than the high priest slash king of kings. And we see that spelled out in five chapters. So chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And he, Shiloh, would reign for all time. So now we want to scooch up into history. The time is roughly 1600, and it's a time of unlimited monarchies wherein the king was noted as, as I was talking about at the outset, as absolute law. This brought conflict to the church. And so a Scottish theologian by the name of Samuel Rutherford penned a dissertation called Lex Rex. The law is king. In the Latin, lex rex, the law is king, rather than the king is law. And for declaring this this scathing biblical position, Rutherford was eventually charged by the British monarchy for high treason. But he died before he could be brought to trial. 
Not surprisingly, Lex Rex was banned by the crown. In fact, every person who owned a copy of that was ordered to turn it in to a king's official. Britain was under centuries of generational monarchy. And the distinction, what was happening was the distinction between where the church's authority began and ended and where the state's authority began and ended became all muddled and confused to where it was indistinguishable, having been commingled over the years. And as in every age there were in those days those who were true believers in the Lord God Almighty, and those who were good churchmen, but were wretched Christians. You see, the spirit of the Pharisees was around long before and long after the Pharisees of Jesus' day, which is why Jesus chooses to quote from the prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before the Pharisees were actually on the scene, He says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so you had a church that was comprised as the church is through the ages and is today and is of this church of true believers. And then those who think they're all fine and all set with God, but they're posers. And then those who are just on a pilgrimage of trying to figure out where everything's at and who this God is, if there even is one. The true believers within the Church of England grew weary, to put it lightly, of this commingling of the church and the monarchy. Again, to where they were inseparable. And so they separated from the Church of England, thereby being called separatists. And they were called separatists, but they were comprised of a radical sect of Puritans who would be called the Pilgrims who did not believe that the church could be reformed while it was commingled with the state, with the king, with the political structures of the day. There were those who were true believers who did remain, believing that, no, we can reform this from within. But the separatists said, no, it's not going to happen, and they left, and those are the pilgrims. Definitive action had to be taken as far as the pilgrims were concerned. And so Sir Richard Hacklute and Sir Edwin Sandys negotiated the Charter of 1606 to get England, if you will, in the game of expansion to this, this, all this land and this, this whole new world that's waiting out there just to be claimed by other countries and explorations. The Charter assigned land rights to two companies marked out as the London Company and, of course, the Plymouth Company. And the two companies had their charges given to them that were, were, were assigned to them officially by the king that ran basically now here in America from South Carolina up into Canada. Jamestown, Virginia was founded in 1607 under the London Company. And then 13 years later, the Plymouth Company landed in Cape Cod. This is the beginning of the America that we know. The Charter of 1606 was the law of the land being finalized by King James I. The Charter of 1606 defined the mission and the purpose of these settlements going out to this new world. So let us understand this morning, for the few minutes that remain, the very roots of our nation's heritage. Here is the mission 
as it was stated in the Charter of 1606, quoting, We greatly commanding and graciously accepting of their desires for the furtherance of so noble of work, which may, by the providence of Almighty God, hereafter tend to the glory of His divine majesty in propagating of Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness. This is a mission statement. Not like a company has a mission statement, but of missions. Go therefore into all the worlds and baptize them. The mission of the expeditions was expressly to evangelize the indigenous peoples of America and Canada. Upon landing on Virginia Beach, knowing what we know now, it's a great choice. Because as we know, Virginia is for lovers. And in fact, Barbara and I did our honeymoon at Virginia Beach. So it was rather a prophetic... Anyway, for no. <laughs> Pastor Robert Hunt, the chaplain of Jamestown, offers a prayer of dedication. Quoting, we do, by her- we do hereby dedicate this land and ourselves to reach the people within these shores with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to raise up godly generations after us. And with these generations, take the kingdom of God to all the earth. May this covenant of dedication remain to all generations as long as this earth remains. And may this land, along with England, be evangelist to the world. Well, you know, America was never a Christian nation. Hogwash. Or, if you prefer, Ohlone Bay. Just pig Latin for baloney. Anyway. Whatever else might be said and has been said concerning the Christian roots of this nation, the historical record is unassailable. And I am of the absolute studied conviction that the reason that history has been all but eliminated in public education is so that the origins and the motives of the people who founded this nation for Jesus Christ is done away with and out of mind. That's my opinion. The Charter of 1606, though, was broad. It was broad because it was a charter. It wasn't meant as sort of a a jot and tittle sort of proclamation. But attending the charter were bylaws. And those bylaws now were much more specific by intention, delineating the practical working out of the charter. And one of those things that it spells out very clearly is the right to self Governance And that right to self-governance is always in the context of self-governance under God Almighty. Even as the charter expresses, quoting still, We shall have and enjoy all liberties, franchises, and immunities within any of our dominions to all intents and purposes as if they had been abiding and born with this our realm of England or any other of our said dominions. Translation, God-given rights would go with them into the new world. So what is really mind-boggling and I would say miraculous concerning the Charter of 1606, is that it was signed by King James I. Now, why is that mind-boggling slash miraculous? Because what it does is, is it takes the idea of Rex Lex, the king is law, 
and does away with that saying, no, the law is king. The king is not the law. It completely undermines the whole foundation of the monarchical structure. And he signed off on it. Secretary brought it, probably brought it in one day and said, hey, can't stack a paper. Yeah, just sign this one. <laughs> Done. God will have his way. King James signs a document granting instead of the king is law, documenting that the law is king, that such rights originate with God Almighty, which is why these rights are said to be unalienable. They are not granted by any human authority or law or set of laws. They are self-evident and they cannot be removed by any but God himself. The language ought to make our ears tingle. It ought to be familiar because 180 years later it would frame the heart of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. As the Mayflower cites Cape Cod, William Brewster leads the faithful in Psalm 100, which is a psalm of thanksgiving, which begins, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Being storm-tossed, they were off track, they blew off course, they landed at Plymouth, but their charter from King James was not for that express territory. And so knowing that they needed a common set of ideals to guide them in their new endeavor, they formed the Mayflower Compact, spelling out who and what they were and why they were there and how they should live. And it would serve until they could obtain an official charter. The compact was written with both believer and unbelievers. There were only about 29 pilgrims or Christians on board the Mayflower. So the pact was written, though, with both believer and unbeliever in view with complete freedom of religion for all without coercion for those who did not believe. But those who did not believe did have to concede to the fact of Christianity as being the informing authority for the development of a lawful society because no other religion but Christianity would actually assure religious freedom for everyone. These are the origins of our country. The protection against a new world monarchy is evident in the rancorous fighting on every detail of our newly forming government. And if you have happened to have watched the HBO series, um, John Adams, you see in there after uh, it's determined that Washington is the first president, they're trying to figure out what do we call him? What, what's his title going to be? And there was quite a bit of rancor because they didn't want any title whatsoever to smack of, of, of a king of what they had just left and what so many had died for and so many through the ages had died for in establishing the land of liberty of the home and the free of the brave. They knew what a monarchy was. And they knew that we had to be governed ultimately under God Almighty 
without unilateral authority and power granted to one individual or even a small group of individuals. And hence, the brilliant, when followed, delineation within our Constitution of the separation of powers, the three branches of government, so that not even one branch would have unilateral authority and power. The founding fathers were incensed by a tyrannical rule and they knew that it needed to be overthrown and they did so with biblical justification which is way beyond the purview of this morning's message. This is what the celebration unique to New England is all about tomorrow. Those brave men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice and it started way beyond, as you can see, the Revolutionary War in 1776 at Lexington and Concord. So as good as Tom Brady is, and as awesome as the Patriots are, our American Patriots are to whom, under God Almighty, we owe our gratitude of liberty and our obligation to do our part in securing that liberty. One little note, very quickly, since we're out of time. Sam Adams. I know Sam Adams. (laughs) Comes in a six-pack or a suitcase, and they have like 15 different kinds of Sam Adams beer. Okay, just a little personal quirk here. For the historical record, Samuel Adams, whose father's name also was Samuel Adams, Samuel Adams, the patriot, the founding father, was not a brewmeister. Hate to disappoint everybody, but he did not make beer. He was a maltster. That's what they were called. (laughs) A maltster? Meaning he was a barley farmer. And he did supply barley to the brewmaker, brewmeisters, and all of that. But it was Samuel Adams' father who was actually the beer maker. So now, again, unfortunately, the only thing many of you are going to take away from here this morning <laughs> is when you see, and you're going through the beer aisle, there's Sam Adams. You're going to go, oh, yeah, no, yeah, note to self. Let me have you stand. Take a moment tomorrow, at least, to just in brief tell your children what Patriot's Day is about. Father in heaven, what we enjoy today, even ever so flawed, why we have been a city on a hill as a shining light to the world, is our roots were with a view toward your kingdom purposes. Lord, our nation has strayed profoundly, and we are reaping consequences formerly unimaginable. We pray, O God, have mercy. We pray, O God, raise up godly leaders and leadership at all levels of our government to reign in the authorities of the heavenlies, of principalities and powers in dark places 
who hate you and everything that you are doing through your people to bring people from the fires of hell. Dear God, stir in our hearts the, the bravery, the conviction, and the need to be involved in our political processes to constrain the juggernaut of evil. For in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.